Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks so much for being with us for today's show. Uh, Big week in politics, a lot to talk about today, so let's get right to the panel. It's Friday, which means my partner on the show is Jim Galloway, former political columnist, longtime reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, continuing to pay as much attention to politics as if he were still doing it full-time. How you doing, Galloway? Uh, well, I'm doing fine. One can't help but pay attention with all the with, with you can't turn on a TV, you can't fire up your computer <laughs> without it throwing itself at you. You know, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, we should point out the fact that, that TV stations in Atlanta have so much political money coming their ways that they are adding news programs. Uh, Channel 2 in the, in the metro Atlanta market, North Georgia market, has added a 3 p.m. newscast to add the amount of time they can give to commercials and so they can take in more money from the campaigns and from the PAC supporting the candidates. So uh, it's gotten to be pretty overwhelming. We're really happy to be joined for the first time today, Jim, by a former colleague of yours, Shannon McCaffrey, reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Shannon, we've been enjoying watching your coverage of the U.S. Senate race, and we're very happy to have you with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. And Professor Bernard Fraga, political science professor at Emory University, whose special area of focus is on looking at electoral, uh, at how elections are, uh, at the various groups that are voting in elections, the demographics of election groups, um, and what that tells us about the trends in voting among uh, many groups, minority groups, and the like. Bernard, say that better than I just did. No, thanks so much for having me. So, yeah, I look at uh, especially voter turnout and the impact on election outcomes. And here in Georgia, a perfect place to study that. So, I'm very happy to be on the show. We were going to we're going to talk about early voting in just a minute. But before we do, let's turn Jim to a, a story that broke overnight. Um, we know that uh, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham had been called to testify, had been subpoenaed by uh, Fonnie Willis to testify in front of the special grand jury investigating the efforts to overturn the 2020 election. He's fought it. He's fought it tooth and nail. He does not want to have to testify. But yesterday, a three-judge panel of the 11th Circuit Court, which we always point out is one of the more conservative courts in the country, um, said, no, you have got to testify you are not immune uh, from testifying uh, uh, just because you're a member of the Senate. Graham's argument has been that he's protected from having to testify about legislative activity, uh, and the court agrees with that. But the three-judge panel said that he can be asked by Fonnie Willis about any coordination with the Trump campaign to arrange the two phone calls that he had with Georgia election officials and whether he pressured 
uh, Brad Raffensperger and anyone else in the Secretary of State's election office uh, to overturn the results of the Georgia vote. Jim? Right, yeah. And uh, the, the the surprise here is that this three three judge panel included uh, two Trump appointees. So yeah. so there's that. He's he's got a couple steps left. Uh, he can he can request a a hearing before the full Eleventh Circuit, right? Uh, or he can go straight to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, and uh, I, I'm I'm going to be very interested in, to see which one he takes. Uh, I, you you have to wonder how much of this is is delay. Uh, and I would I would guess if he goes to the Eleventh Circuit, uh, that would be that would be more of a delaying tactic, given that the U.S. Supreme Court would have the final word on it. But it, it's you know this this is it's we're we're kind of in the dark period right now with the Fonnie Willis uh, investigation, where where we're not hearing a whole lot publicly, and so uh, this is this is a, an important little scrap of news I think that uh, that's 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 gotten out there. Shannon, one of the things that if, if you're Lindsey Graham, you've got to worry about, I think, is this. We know that Brad Raffensperger has already appeared in front of the special grand jury, but we don't know what he may have told them about what Lindsey Graham said to him in these phone calls questioning the accuracy of the results of the 2020 presidential election. Uh, did he, in fact, act as a United States senator, as he claims to have, who's going to have to certify the votes and therefore just wants clarification? Or did Raffensperger tell the special grand jury that, yes, Lindsey Graham did, in fact, try to influence uh, the count of the vote and influence Raffensperger into perhaps looking at ways in which he could uh, overturn the results? So Graham doesn't know, which is one of the reasons he's got to be a little nervous about testifying. Yeah, that's right. I mean, he he doesn't know if he's going in there and what he'll he'll be saying would be contradicting what Raffensperger says. Um, so it's a little bit of a risk for him. And I think it's worth pointing out, you know, what those phone calls involved. I mean, Graham apparently asked Raffensperger whether he could throw out all mail-in ballots in counties where there were high rates of um, rejections because the signatures didn't match. I mean, that's Clearly, according to Raffensperger's version, anyway, I mean that's clearly a significant phone call. That is that is uh, that is not a phone call in which you know you're you're making pleasantries. That's a phone call in which there is a discussion of real actions with real implications in the election. So I think it'll be very very interesting um, when all this is said and done to see what role Graham plays in this. I also think it's worth noting, just because I've been on the campaign trail a lot, you know, he has, he may be fighting to keep from uh, coming in and talking to this grand jury, but he's been happy to come to Georgia and be on the campaign trail. He was with Herschel Walker just Wednesday. Um, so he, he likes Georgia when it comes to uh, getting votes for his <laughs> friends, does not like the court. <laughs> you know, Bernard, it's kind of mind bending that here we are literally uh, two plus weeks away from mm. Election Day 2022, and we still have headlines about the election of 2020. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think, you know, on the one hand, folks are really tired of talking about the 2020 election. Uh, we saw this come up in the debate. Uh, you know, Stacey Abrams was asked is one of the first questions, you know, would she, you know, um, accept the results of the election no matter what, it, you know, pointing to her kind of 2018, um, you know, statements regarding the validity of that election. I saw the same thing in the Raffensperger win debate. 
But, you know, I, when I think about this from the perspective of the voters, I think, you know, this really does two things, Lindsey Graham having to testify. One, for Democrats, it again brings up, you know, the specter of Trump, voter suppression, threats to democracy, which Democrats nationally are identifying as kind of key issues that are motivating their voting behavior this year. Um, but for Republicans, it might also remind some Republicans here in the state about the pushback that Kemp and Raffensperger in particular gave Trump and the kind of stop the steal movement. So I don't know whether that's going to have a big impact on their vote choice in this election. I don't think it's going to make, you know, a Kemp voter switch to Abrams um, or a Walker voter switch to Warnock. But, you know, it might, again, deter turnout a little bit. And as we saw in 2021, on uh, January 2021 and in November of 2020, you know, that's that's really something that the Republicans statewide are concerned about. Yeah, I think when you say it might deter voter turnout, you're particularly talking about Republicans the way it happened in the runoff election with uh, that Warnock and Ossoff were able to win because Republicans uh, weren't confident that their votes really counted, thanks to Donald Trump. Uh, Bernard, as long as the ball's in your court, I, I do want to talk about early voting for a few minutes here. Um, and, and, we've, we, and we're going to be cautious. We have now only had four days of early voting. Um, and yet we're seeing some interesting trends, aren't we? As of the end of voting yesterday, 573,598 people had cast their ballots. That's 48% um, higher than uh, the uh, last midterm election in 2018. So in this first week, we are seeing a huge appetite, Bernard, among Georgians to get out and cast their ballots. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we're seeing much higher uh, early voting, and this is primarily, again, early in-person voting than we saw in 2018. So the expectation uh, is that turnouts you know, going to be higher this year than it was in the last midterm election. Now, importantly, turnout in terms of early voting, although a lot of that was mail ballots, is not higher than it was in 2020 in the presidential mm -hmm. election. Now, that's to be expected. I don't think anyone thinks the turnout is going to be higher this year than it was two years ago. I mean, midterms always have lower turnout. But when we're looking at the early voting numbers, I think, you know, Democrats are optimistic that that's their supporters that are turning out. Uh, but I know Republicans are also making a big push for early voting, especially, again, early in-person voting. And the big change from 2020, right, is that we have so many fewer um, individuals voting early via the mail or drop boxes, right? This is, again, mostly early in-person voting and people trying to lock in their vote before Election Day. Shannon, you're out there on the campaign. How are, are Warnock and Walker's people, when you go to rallies, you go to events, are both campaigns urging people to get out and vote early? How is that playing out on the campaign trail? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Warnock has had a whole series of events this week, which have been aimed very specifically at getting early voters out. And Walker talks about it the same way. I mean, this is turning from, an, you know, an election that, you know, we're talking about issues and character. I mean, we're still going to see those things, but they are really pivoting to turnout now. This is all about turnout. This is get your people out. You know, at this point, probably, probably most, most people have made up their mind. Uh, there are like, you know, a few persuadable voters out there, but they are the, the unicorns in this uh, in this race right now. I mean, this is all about turnout, and the earlier they can lock those votes in, the better. Jim, it's interesting to hear that maybe Republicans are urging early turnout. We remember in 2020, uh, uh, Donald Trump 
was urged over and over again by his campaign advisors to encourage Republicans to get out and vote early. And he insisted, no, they should turn out only on Election Day. Um, and in the long run, the early vote uh, really was, was, uh, went strongly against him. So Republicans now are on board this early voting train. Oh, yeah. yeah, And you have to remember that early voting, particularly absentee ballot voting, uh, was always a, a Republican tool until until covid hit and that is that 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 changed that changed the voting behavior uh in in that in 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 the in in that cycle you have to wonder if it's it's going back to traditional now you have 80 percent more than 80 percent of of the of the early voters are uh, above 50 years old and i'm not seeing i'm not seeing a surge in female voters 54 percent 53.6 percent have cast their ballots of those who've cast early ballots are women. That that that, that doesn't uh, speak to, as a speak uh, speak to me as a, a do, anti Dobbs decision. All right, we've got to get to our first break of the show. I, I do want to come back and talk a bit more about the breakdown of who seems to be voting uh, in these first four days. Uh, we're finishing up pledge our pledge period here. Uh, the uh, fall pledge drive has gone on for the last couple of weeks. Many of you out there have been extraordinarily generous because you know that shows like Political Rewind rely on your uh, dollars to keep going. So as we come to the very end of the drive, here's how you can get involved if you haven't been involved. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Jim Galloway, Shannon McCaffrey of the AJC, and Bernard Fraga, professor of political science at Emory University, on the show today. Um, Bernard, you mentioned that all of us uh, spend time looking at Georgia votes. Ryan Anderson's website, where he collect, collects all the data on early voting. I, please help me and explain something to our listeners. When We know that absentee voting is underway right now, mail-in balloting, as is, of course, in-person balloting. So when we say that 573,000 plus people have voted early as of the end of voting yesterday. Are we talking about the combination of absentee and in-person voting? Or are we only talking about the absentee ballots that have come in? Well, yeah, this is where it gets confusing. And you can make it even more confusing because technically in many states, um, voting early in person is also absentee. It's called absentee in person. Uh, So, Here in Georgia in 2020, right, we saw a surge in voting by mail, something that was unprecedented um, for the state, just like in many other states because of the pandemic. This year, as in 2021 in the municipal elections and as in the primary, we see a lot less voting by mail. So that 574 or so thousand figure for how many people have already voted here in Georgia, 519,000 or so of that is in person, so early in person ballots, and only about 54,000 is vote by mail. So if you look at just early voting in person, it looks somewhat comparable to what you saw in 2020. But voting by mail is far, far, far lower than what we saw in 2020. So the overall early vote is getting smaller and smaller. 
relative to the 2020 election at this point in 2020. Some of that is because there's a little bit lower turnout in terms of early in-person voting, but the biggest story is many fewer people voting absentee by mail. Well, Jim, this is a line of of conversation I didn't even expect we were going to have today, but what Bernard just told us is pretty interesting to me. Um, We know SB 202 made it harder for people to get uh, absentee ballots, to get mail-in ballots, because they have to show photo ID, they have to have a printer and all that sort of thing. Republicans like to say, look how many people are voting. SB 202 didn't do anything to suppress the vote. But what Bernard just told us is that apparently absentee balloting has fallen off dramatically. And who knows whether it's a result of how much more difficult it is to apply for an absentee ballot now. Yeah, and I'd like to see the, the I'd like to see the, the stats on who those absentee voters are. Uh, whether they, whether as we said earlier, whether they, whether we're headed back to the the traditional pool of 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 older older uh, Republican dominated voters, uh, and 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 look, this is look, the, this is something that was designed. This is this is this is purposeful. This is this this goes back to say like uh, just ba- the basic uselessness that uh, the legislature gave the the role of drop boxes. I mean that's that's a that's a huge part of it. Of, uh, I mean, this isn't just because if if you remember during the COVID, the COVID elections, it wasn't just uh, <coughs> excuse me, it wasn't just uh, 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 mail in ballots. It was mail in and mo- I would say primarily primarily drop off uh, drop off ballots. That has been uh, almost completely taken out of the picture now. All right. Um, we will continue in the days ahead to look at uh, uh, the early voting and what it uh, tells us. Um, I'd, I'd rather than dig into the demographics of that right now, let, let's move on and talk about the campaigns much more specifically. Uh, Shannon, uh, it, you uh, were at a rally the other day. It turns out Bernard Fraga was there as well. One of the events, a celebrity event, there have been a number of celebrity events going on in the state. Um, you were at an event that Lin-Manuel Miranda, uh, the creator of Hamilton, has become a ubiquitous uh, name, I think, for, for in many, many households across the state. He was here to rally Hispanic voters uh, for Raphael Warnock and, and Stacey Abrams at, at the same time, I assume. Talk, talk a little bit about that event and what Miranda had to say to the crowd. Yeah, I think this is one of the few events that my kids were jealous that I was going to um, because they they really aren't interested in most of what I do. But when they found out I was going to see Lin-Manuel Miranda, there was a, a peak of interest. Anyway, um, he yeah, he was at the Georgia Beer Garden. It was kind of a real casual event in the in the on the patio off the beer garden. Um, it was a little bit chilly, um, and he. Uh, he came out and just really talked about, you know, the stakes in this election. He, you know, of course, threw in a line from Hamilton. History has its eyes on you, Georgia, you know, meaning that we are, again, set to play a really critical role in this election. But, you know, he and um, Raphael Warnock were really trying to make the point that Latino voters can have a lot um, of sway in this election. They are a small part of the electorate. Um, I think it's, what, three or four percent of the overall electorate. But, you know, we're talking about a race that could be very, very close. And, you know, if you're talking about a race that could be decided by one percent, you know, getting those voters out could make a real big difference. And so, you know, Warnock was trying to kind of turn on that star power a little bit and get the crowd revved up. 
Um, you had true believers there that night. I mean, you know, you weren't you weren't talking about a group of persuadable voters, but they certainly came out of that very energized. And clearly, the point of a, of, a, of an event like that, as you say, these are people already uh, who know what they want to do is to get them to get out and actually cast their ballots. Bernard, um, Tom Edsel, who writes a column for the New York Times, uh, did a piece about a week ago in which you're cited, uh, and it's about Latino voters. If, if you don't mind, I'm going to read the lead and then ask you to uh, comment on it. The choices made by Latino voters on November 8th, Edsel writes, will be crucial to the outcome in a disproportionate share of Senate battleground states like Arizona, where Hispanics are 31.5% of the population, Nevada, Nevada, 29%, Florida, 26%, Colorado, 22%, Georgia, 9.6%. Talk about what that means to us here in Georgia and your evaluation of the Hispanic vote here. Yeah, I mean, you know, as Shannon just mentioned, right, we have to be very careful when talking about um, the power of Latino and Hispanic voters in particular. You know, the the biggest issue that's impacting the political power that Hispanic and Latino voters have in Georgia and other states is turnout, is low turnout. Uh, here in Georgia, while Latinos make up maybe 10 percent of the population of the state, in terms of the actual population of voters, it's closer to three or four percent. Now, we've had many elections decided by less than three or four percent. That's why the campaigns are doing this work. Not just Democrats, not just Raphael Warnock, but Republicans as well are doing a tremendous amount of work because they know that every single vote counts. But what we're seeing and what I talk about in that article is the fact that Trump and other Republicans down the ballot made substantial gains with Latino voters in the 2020 election. Those gains do not seem to have reversed as far as we can tell. You still have a lot of Latino voters that are backing Republicans, maybe a 10 percentage point gain from what we saw pre-2020. But we also don't see a lot of evidence of additional gains being made by Republicans. That is, we don't see a scenario, at least nationally, where Republicans are going to get 50 percent more than 50 percent of the Latino vote. We're talking about maybe a third of Latino voters this year that are going to back Republicans. And that's probably true here in Georgia, certainly true in states where Latino voters are a larger share of the electorate. Um, Bernard, I don't know that you have any data on this, but at least you might have anecdotal information. What's driving that community, the community to move uh, more in a direction of Republican? Yeah, this is some of the research that um, that um, Ed Saul was citing in his New York Times piece. So the research that I've done on this says that it's, you know, frankly, Latino voters who are already conservative, they were conservative before 2020, uh, coming back into the Republican fold in some sense. So Latinos who are conservative on a set of issues, not just things like abortion or economic policy, but things like crime policy, even immigration. Uh, self-identified ideological conservative Latinos who in the past either stayed home or voted for Democrats now voting for Republicans. And I think the question Democrats have to ask themselves is, are those voters winnable? Can you get those voters back? And for Republicans, are you actually swaying individuals, changing their minds, or just picking up voters that you should have had before 2020 anyway? Jim? Yeah, uh, Bernard, let me ask you just if, 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 if you could clarify, because uh, reading the Edsel piece in the New York Times and what, what you've written about it, 
it it it's it, it appears to me that 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 the argument is that Hispanic voters are are far more are, are straight up policy driven rather than uh, rather than members of the Republican tribe or the Democratic tribe. Uh, is, is that is that truly the case? Well, I, I think this is again what we're what we're trying to figure out. Um, it, it doesn't have to be an either or, uh, in my understanding of the situation. I think that the understanding of Hispanic and Latino voters as being not at all policy driven, except for on the issue of immigration, we saw in 2020 clearly false. Right? That's false. Latino voters, their number one issue is the same number one issue that we see for all voters: inflation, the economy. And so if Latinos think that one party is going to do better on the economy, going to put more money in their pocket than the other party, they're going to vote for that party. And that's exactly what we see here in Georgia and in other states, too. So I think what uh, the 2020 result in terms of Latino voters did is a wake-up call. Analysts and others to say Latino voters are voters. They're voting on policy. They're voting on other issues, too. But they want to hear from both sides of the political spectrum, what are you going to do for us? What are you going to do? in terms of helping us economically with the issues of the day. And that means they need appeals and outreach from both parties. All right. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about that and then move on to a number of other subjects. We're going to take our final pledge break of the fall campaign right now. When we come back, plenty of time to uh, talk about other issues. You're listening to Political Rewind, and here's how you can help support us. Since we're coming to the end of Political Rewind's portion of the uh, pledge drive, I want to say that uh, on behalf of our team, Victoria Evans-Cash, Jay Cook, Chase McGee, and Natalie Mendenhall, we're very grateful for all of you who have supported us uh, and uh, and uh, hope you continue to find this show is worth your time and your contributions. Uh, <laughs> Shannon, let me let me move on, actually. We, we know that... Um, the Warnock campaign and the PAC supporting him have continued to hammer away at Herschel Walker, lying about many aspects of his life. Um, and, of course, one of those things that's really been prominent in the news lately is his t- uh, talking about being a member of law enforcement. We had that interesting incident during the debate last Friday night where he flashed a badge that turned out to be an honorary badge. Um, the Walker campaign has decided to embrace that. They've decided uh, that they're going to be passing out plastic versions of that badge with apparently a message saying, I support Herschel or something. Talk about that a little bit. This story has fascinated me. So uh, we were the original outlet that reported (laughs) back in June about, you know, these um, statements that Walker had made previous to running for the Senate in which he had – you know, said he was uh, a, a, a member of law enforcement. I said he, he said he worked with the Cobb PD. He said he was an FBI agent. He said he trained at Quantico. And, you know, this is typically the kind of situation in which somebody would, you know, try to get away from it and in, in, avoid talking about it. And and But they have taken a page from the Trump playbook, and they have really just tried to pivot and use it to their advantage. And, and I mean, you saw that at the debate where he flashed this badge and kind of got in trouble for it. But, you know, clearly that was planned. And, and he uh, then used that to move forward. He's now been showing it at campaign events. He's going to hand out these badges. And, you know, for him, th- their argument is that, hey, it allows us to showcase our support for police and our support from police. 
um, you know, people don't care about the particulars. You know, it's almost a wink and a nod. You know what I mean. You know, you, you understand what I'm saying here. It's become this symbol. You know, the Walker, the, I'm sorry, the Warnock people have fired back that, you know, this shows that he is not to be trusted. This shows he is, you know, continuing to lie. But, you know, you also, and I, I pointed this out in a story that I wrote yesterday, this, this also really kind of glosses over the fact that Walker has had several run-ins with police, including one back in 2001 where he threatened to shoot out with police. And so, you know, it almost allows him to create this veneer of of a of a of a badge and and a, and a show when it's it's glossing over the fact that he actually has had some serious confrontations with police over the years. So it, it has been to, to me this is one of the most fascinating um, sort of side uh, side stories of the campaign. Um, so uh, Jim, let's talk a little bit more about what the Walker campaign is uh, doing in these final weeks of the race. You're a proud graduate of the University of Georgia. The Walker campaign just released a commercial with uh, Vince Dooley, the legendary football coach of the University of Georgia, coached Herschel back in the national championship season, looking into the camera for a minute and talking about all the reasons that Herschel Walker, in fact, will make a great United States senator. Uh, how big an impact does uh, uh, Vince Dooley have on, on the University of Georgia crowd? Well, look, he's he's uh, he, he's he's a a revered figure. Uh, number one, you have to remember that uh, Vince Dooley was one of the uh, uh, in the latter part of the twenty six Donald Trump campaign. He came out and and uh, at the Fox Theater and endorsed Donald Trump. So so yeah, he was not, a Trump backer. This is not a, this is not particularly a surprise. Uh, yeah, he hasn't been in great health uh, all, all that uh, uh, lately. He, I think he had a run-in with 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 COVID, but you do have to you have to wonder how many uh, younger voters uh, voters under the age of fifty uh, will remember him. I mean, Charlie Trippy died this week uh, uh, at at the age of uh, of a hundred, a uh, uh, big football star from uh, UGA in the in the forties. Uh, and and you have to you have to wonder how many how many people had to look up. Uh, uh, had to Google him to see who he was, but if if I could if I could just m- mention uh, just uh, comment uh, very quickly on what 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 Shannon was talking about Herschel Walker and and his badge, you know it's one thing that's been a theme in all these Donald Trump books that have been c- coming out is is uh, kind of the 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 Republicans are are kind of in two camps. Uh, are you in on the joke or are you not in on the joke? Uh, to to me, that's what Walker is doing. He is letting his 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 his, his all of his followers say, "I'm in on the joke. I'm an inside player. I know what I know exactly what was going on, and 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 I'm all in favor of it." Bernard, yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the the notion that somehow clarifying, for example, that the badge was honorary, it was given, and he was, didn't take an oath or anything like that. That's completely beside the point for Walker's core supporters, which is who he's speaking to. We just talked about how important turnout is right now. It's really about getting out the vote uh, for him and for Warnock. Uh, his core supporters are sitting there saying, look, it just reinforces this narrative um, about you know crime and the police, right? And as far as we can tell in all the polling that I've seen here in Georgia nationally, 
voters who are concerned about crime, police, uh, no matter who the incumbent is, their incumbent AG. Um, we saw Jen Jordan, you know, attacking, you know, um, the incumbent for being soft on crime, not focusing on crime enough, uh, violent crime. You know, most voters who are talking about these issues and emphasizing crime are backing Republicans, are blaming Joe Biden, you know, through whatever means for that. So, again, I think, you know, in addition to the idea that this allows some voters to feel like they're on, you know, Team Walker, uh, it also allows some voters to, again, you know, bring to the top of mind issues of crime, issues of security, which have historically helped Republicans. Shannon? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's absolutely right. I I, I, uh, I think that it's another example for Walker voters of something that they are just going to look past because they, again, and I think Jim is absolutely right. They're kind of in on the joke. They they know what he's trying to say. When he flashes that badge, he's he's also saying, you know, he's 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 bringing up the criticism of the media and saying you're in with me. You're you're with me. I, I we're both against that that media and those critics who are are making fun of us because there is a certain mocking character character to some of this criticism of him, and he's bringing them on board with him. I will. I, I just want to point out one more thing on this, which is it, it went so viral that uh, the Comedy Central. Uh, the new parody news show uh, managed to call him and, and pretend to report a crime, which is, uh, you know, you know, you've really hit the big time when, when Comedy Central is uh, is calling you up and getting you on on their show. And he actually picked up the phone. Yeah. By the way, um, I, I know not everyone out there has a, a subscription to The New York Times and, and you have to uh, have one to get past the paywall. But when Jim talks about the joke, it's it the it's Carlo, Carlos Lozada, who is a brand new columnist for the New York Times. His debut column was on just this subject: the notion that Republicans they get what a Donald Trump is doing; they know it's nonsense, but they're in on the joke. He's talking about the same thing with Herschel Walker now. Um, I mean, Jim has said that this is a really important column that's become. Uh, uh, viral among many people, especially in the news business. So if you, we're going to post a link to it. And if you can't, if you do have a subscription, uh, you'll be able to take a look at it. I apologize <laughs> if you uh, don't. Um, Shannon, let's talk about the other, another celebrity, Oprah, back in the fight with Stacey Abrams. We remember that in 2018, Oprah actually came and did an event with Stacey Abrams, apparently, and I think it's maybe your reporting that told us this, um, this time Stacey Abrams reached out to Oprah and said, I could use your help. Um, what did they do together? It was a virtual event. It wasn't live. Yeah, it, it was a virtual event. And, and you know, I mean, Oprah and Stacey Abrams have a history together. They've, they've done events before together. But I, I really do feel like, you know, this was just designed in the same way that Lin-Manuel Miranda's event with Raphael Warnock was designed to just create a little bit of buzz. Um, you know, it, it was um, it was a super, um, you know, it was a low key event. It wasn't, you know, anything that that got that dove too heavily into issues and policy. It was more about, you know, her Im imprimatur of sport and, and just kind of getting a little bit of energy around Abrams campaign, which some folks say it's been lacking. Bernard, um does an Oprah Winfrey, in your opinion, really move uh, voters one way or the other? Well, so I think this is, this is what's critical, right? Uh, it, 
I don't think that it moves voters one way or the other in terms of who they're going to choose to vote for. But it might move voters one way or the other in terms of deciding whether or not to turn out. And I think, again, yeah. we're at the point of the campaign. I was looking at some of the polling data from UGA and from other outlets that says the number of undecided voters right here in Georgia in the gubernatorial election, 1%, 2%. Um, this was a week ago or two weeks ago. So, I mean, we're, we're already at a point in the campaign where most people are locked in about who they would vote for. It's a question of whether they actually turn out. And at this point, Stacey Abrams, I think, needs, you know, all the help that she can get from Oprah forever, from whoever else, given that it's a midterm, to make sure that her supporters uh, actually turn out to the polls. And I just want to add, too, that, you know, we're, we're talking about celebrities coming to the state, but the, the probably the biggest celebrity of all is going to be arriving at the end of this month for Democrats, and yes. that's President Barack Obama. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jim, so let's talk turnout for, for the next couple of minutes. We, we, t- we started the show by saying there are millions and millions of dollars being poured into commercials, and we're going to see more and more of them. We're up to something like almost $400 million in spending on ads. I wonder to what extent, at this point, it is counterproductive to keep putting money into commercials and turn a lot of that money toward uh, getting out the vote efforts I assume the campaigns are doing that, but we don't know as much about that as we do about their commercial spending. Right, right. GOTV efforts, uh, they're, 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 uh, they are the secret army of, uh, in any campaign. It's, it's, it's something that voters have, uh, or reporters and journalists have a hard time tracking. And uh, and uh, uh, you know I can I can remember when when Ralph Reed back in the back in the day would bring in busloads of people of of, of door knockers into a, into or into a particular area simply and and you often wondered whether that was for show or not I don't know what Brian Kemp is doing in rural Georgia which I think is very important I don't know what kind of phone banks Stacey Abrams has got uh, and and in 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 pushing people. Carrying people, you can carry people. You can you can get busloads of people now to to early voting sites. How much of that is going on, uh, Bernard? Yeah, just real quick. I mean, it, this is a key, you know, kind of divide that we see in terms of you know delegating responsibility, voter mobilization, nonpartisan for the most part. It might have partisan implications. So candidates can rely on third party organizations to be doing a lot of that important work while they focus on attacking their opponents. Shannon, um, are you seeing much of a difference in between the two Senate campaigns in their GOTV efforts? Well, you know, it's it's interesting because I think the Republicans really felt like the Democrats outdid them in the last in the in the 2020 election and the 2021 runoff. So, I mean, I think you see them really taking this seriously this year. But, you know, I mean, I, I think they both have good operations on this front. They they are both, you know, th- this is very um, sophisticated at this point, driven by a lot of data. This is not, you know, something where they're coming in blind. So I think, you know, both operations are, are really going heavy. I think you're, you're going to, you know, you've probably already be, been seeing tons of text messages on your phones and, you know, getting knocks on your door. And that's only going to intensify in these next few weeks. Well, we should say in terms of that, that it's Democrats in the past who have been much stronger uh, because of a lot logic is Stacey Abrams and her organizations to get out uh, uh, voters. And now Republicans are really working hard uh, to match that. We are completely out of time. 
for today's show. Shannon McCaffrey, what a pleasure to have you on the on the show. Come back, please. Bernard Fraga, we always love having you here. Jim Galloway, my Friday partner, thank you for uh, being with me again uh, today. We're out of time for Political Rewind. Um, we're going to send you back to a pledge break in just a minute. Um, but we'll be back again on Monday uh, with a full show. We're excited about looking at the last two weeks of the 2022 midterm elections and hope you're along for the ride with us. So until Monday, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care, stay healthy, go cast a ballot, do it today. Bye-bye, everybody.